Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 13. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made a witness to the peoples. I made a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The word of the Lord. Well, today marks the third Sunday of Advent. And I know not everyone grew up in churches that celebrated Advent, that had that tradition. And so if you don't know, that's the season of the church year, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Um, that's typically been, kind of, it's kind of like if you think about it, a Christmas Lent. Uh, uh, you know, a season of, of preparation for um, the big holiday that's coming up, which is Christmas. The celebration of the miracle of the Incarnation, just as Lent is preparing us for Good Friday and, and Easter. And so here we are in the third Sunday, and, and, and the scriptures this time of year typically are Old Testament prophecies, and the ones that we're looking at this year are ones that take us and speak to Israel's experience in exile. And so it's a very dark time of year, right? We have however, nine more days till we reach the winter solstice, the, the, the day of the year with the least amount of daylight, and so we focus on this time, what does it mean to live in exile, in, in darkness, in a time where it seems that the life and the light and love of God are dim and distant. How do you keep hope alive when everything around you feels hopeless? That's the question that we wrestle with, and that's what God's people had to do as well in their period of exile. And so as the people of God in Advent, we are reminded particularly of the power and importance of waiting, of patience. Because patience is itself, is, is a hallmark of faith. It's a, it's a great manifestation of faith. Trusting that despite appearances to the contrary, God is going to show up and do something about our sorry set 
of circumstances. As Christians, we believe that God has already done everything that he needed to do at the first advent 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem and then, you know, 1,970 years ago in, in Jerusalem on the cross, that, that, that God has achieved that great victory over sin, death, evil, and the devil. And, and so the, this, this season of Advent, we await his second coming and the full implementation of that victory. And so our sermons in this time have been focused on the E-words of Advent, you know, exile, uh, endurance, expectation. I want to add two more to our lexicon this morning for Advent, and, and that is encouragement and extravagance. Because that's exactly what Isaiah chapter 55 gives us. It, it gives encouragement to a people who need to come home. And, and it speaks to the extravagant outpouring of God's grace and mercy upon them. And it's filled with invitations, almost from the first word. It says, come to the waters for those who are thirsty. Come to the marketplace for those who don't even have any money. It says, eat to those who have spent far too long feeding themselves with, with, with things that don't satisfy. To seek the Lord while he may be found. To come and, and reason together. To, to re-examine our whole way of thinking and planning and looking at the world. And so Isaiah 55, it's God's invitation you know, to, to move from a world that's filled with darkness and futility and frustration and to enter into a different kind of world, a world that is, is overflowing with God's grace. To look at the world through eyes that see that there is an ocean of grace out there, not just a desert of despair. That un, underneath our, our very feet are these vast aquifers of God's grace. If only we would seek it and find it. Grace, so real and so necessary. Grace that's like the rains that Isaiah speaks of, that, that fall from the heavens and, and accomplish its purposes regardless. It's like grace because the earth doesn't ask for it. It doesn't deserve it. And yet God sends it. And what comes forth is life and life teeming with abundance. Isaiah says that God's word is the same way. And when he uses... That phrase, that the word of the Lord, it's not speaking here about Scripture per se, but in the Old Testament when it says the word of the Lord, what it's talking about are God's promises, uh, God's commands, God's royal decrees. God speaks, God promises, God commits, God blesses, God showers the world with grace, and, and things happen. Creation springs forth. Slaves are freed. Dry bones come alive. Poor widows have enough oil in their jar for food. A synagogue ruler's daughter comes back to life, as does a widow's son. Bleeding stops. Tax collectors and sinners repent and are forgiven. The humble are exalted. And those who have always been running in last place somehow find that somehow they finished first. And so God's word is a word of grace, which is good news for sinners. Good news for the poor, good news for the oppressed, good news for the sick, good news for the brokenhearted, good news for the people who, you know, are, are always kind of picked last, put in the lowest reading group or the lowest math group who are always passed over for the promotion or the position, the, 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 the proverbial back row students 
of the world. To those types, grace has always sounded like good news because the world typically shows them so little of it. But grace has always sounded like bad news for the winners, for the front row students, for the meritocrats, for the naturally gifted and talented, the types born on third base who think they're standing there because they hit a triple. For those whom Timothy Keller calls, and I, I love this phrase that he coined, the middle class in spirit. You know, kind of like, yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing pretty good. Grace seems like bad news or not fully good news to them because grace isn't fair. And for the middle class in spirit, we have achieved our situation and station in life because we deserve it. We've worked hard and we have played by the rules. But grace isn't about working hard and playing by the rules. Grace is about us not getting what we deserve, but instead getting what we don't. Grace doesn't differentiate between the worthy and the unworthy. It doesn't discriminate between the good and the bad, the smart and the dumb, the rich and the poor, the sick and the healthy, the strong and the weak. You know, grace, it, it, it sounds too good to be true. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. How can you buy something if you don't have any money? That doesn't make sense. What's the catch? What's the famous saying? There's no such thing as a free, a free lunch, right? Those green eye shade economists always like to say that. Someone's got to pay. You know, the thing about grace is, is that while it seems too good to be true, what Scripture shows us time and again is that it is too good to not be true. And so what does a world filled with God's grace look like for us? As Jesus likes to say, to what shall we compare it? Look at verse 2 where it says, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. And that Hebrew word that gets translated as rich food, uh, it, it literally means fat. It's saying delight yourselves in the fat. And, and if you watch cooking shows, you know that fat is flavor. Fat is flavor. That's why it's so good. That's why Paula, you know, Paula Dean, is that her name? The southern cook lady? She's like, throw an extra stick of butter in there because it's going to make, make it taste extra good. And so this is God's invitation to feast to savor the flavor. And as I was reading and reflecting on this, on, on, on grace as really as an invitation to, to feast and what this teaches us about grace, my mind turned to a, a book that came out in the late 1990s. You may or may not have heard of it. Uh, it was written by an author uh, who's a, he's an at-large editor today for Christianity Today named Philip Yancey. And Philip Yancey, is a, this is a very popular book, probably his most popular work. He, he has a bit of a Bob Ross vibe to him, kind of a, you know, the white, gray, old man fro. Philip Yancey kind of has that vibe to him. Uh, and this book is, is a great book. And, and, and Yancey's thesis in this book, what's so amazing about grace? Because Yancey himself, he, he grew up in a, in a very Christian fundamentalist home. And he says, there's a lot of people like me who left the church, at least for a season, because they couldn't find any grace in it. But he said, there's a lot of people like me too who came back because we couldn't find it anywhere else. And so for Yancey, he says, grace, he's like, this is the last best word that we've got. Because unlike every other good word, you know, every other religious word, righteous, holy, even words like, you know, justice, he says, they all kind of spoil over time. They curdle like milk that gets left out too long. 
But grace is a word that hasn't been sullied. It, it hasn't curdled. It, it, it hasn't spoiled. It's an unspoiled word. It's because it's a gospel word. It's a word of pure, unsullied, unsurpassable good news. In the book's opening chapter, so there's the introduction. He says, grace is the last best word. And so, you know, he's going to tell you why that is and give you illustrations of grace. And then the opening chapter of this book is basically the summary of a 1987 Danish film that goes by the title of Babette's Feast. Has anyone here ever seen Babette's Feast? Please raise your hand. Boom. Okay. I love it. Yeah, well, we got some hands going up. I love this. It is a good movie. An interesting movie. I mean, it's Danish. It's got the subtitles. Uh, I like the subtitles more than the overdub. But, but if you haven't seen it, it's an illustration. It's an extended parable of grace. And so I sat down myself this week to watch it to see, okay, is this as good as Yancey makes it sound? And so the, the, the setting, and it's based on a, a short story from the early 20th century. So the setting is the early to mid-1800s in a small fishing village on the coast of, of Jutland in Denmark. And it's a very simple, poor village. Uh, the, 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 the homes all are the same, and they have these thatched roofs. And, and there's a village church there. It's headed by this austere, uh, prophetic uh, pastor who develops a, a following around himself. Because he has this just message about inspiring people to live lives not centered on earthly pleasures, but, but, but to think about the world to come, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so crowds, you know, flock to hear his sermons and to gather around his table for his table talk. And he, and he has these two daughters late in life, Martina and Philippa, named after Martin Luther and uh, Martin Luther's faithful consigliere, Philip Melanchthon. So this is a pious man and a powerful preacher, and these daughters of his are unsurpassed in their beauty. Young men come to church, you know, just to, uh, just to see them. And all offers and advances of, of courtship are rejected by their father. Their mother has died, and so the pastor says that, that the, his two daughters are his right hand and his left hand. And, and they're indispensable to his ministry. And, and what is love and marriage compared to spending one's life serving Christ? The situation holds until one day a, a dashing young Swedish military offer, Lorenz Lönheim. He gets kicked to Jutland from his military base because he's amassed gambling debts and he's been out drinking and carousing and womanizing. So they make him go live with his aunt to, you know, to get his life in order. And he shows up to church with his aunt and he sees Martina, the pastor's daughter, and he's captivated by her beauty, so captivated that he begins to spend time at the pastor's home group. And we see a mutual interest developing between them, but Martina rejects him. And so he returns to his military garrison, committed to doing everything in his life to advance his career and his station. The other daughter, uh, Philippa, she has the voice of an angel. People come to church to hear her sing. And one Sunday, there just so happens to be a famous French baritone, Achille Papin. And he's visiting from Paris. He had gone to the Danish, Danish coast to, um, to get his health. And he happens into the church, and he hears her voice, and he's captivated, and he offers her singing lessons because he believes that he has found the next star of the Paris opera. And as he's training her, he teaches her a, a love song from uh, Mozart's Don Giovanni. 
which that's, you know, the Italian for Don Juan. So this is, you know, Don Juan famous as the kind of Lothario and seducer. And so there's this love song back and forth between them. And it, and it stirs these feelings in Philippa that are terrifying to her. And so she tells her father, send him a letter. My lessons are over. And he returns to Paris dejected. And 35 years pass. The old pastor has died, his flock has floundered, and his daughters are trying their best to keep this small community alive, but they're aging, and the needs of the people in their small, poor village are great. The best years for all of them are far behind. And one stormy night, a woman shows up from Paris with a letter from Achille Papin informing the daughters that this woman who he's sending to them, her family has, has been killed or imprisoned in the revolutionary uprisings of 1848. And she's had to flee. And so his request is that they take her on as a domestic. And her name is Babette. They can't afford to pay her. But she insists that, that she be allowed to stay with them in return for room and board. And the first lesson they teach Babette, the, the daughters, is how to make their staple food that they eat. It's, uh, it's dried cod with uh, stale bread boiled in water and seasoned with a little ale. It looks as disgusting as I just described it. Then 14 more years passed, and the daughters are now very old women. Their, their pious group has dwindled to 10 or so gray hairs. They still sing the songs of the heavenly Jerusalem, but you can tell that their hearts aren't quite in it anymore. This community that was once bound in, in Christian Love has grown cold, and, and, and their sentiments have curdled with the memories of old grudges and past sins. And it's really unclear what keeps this group of people gathering together other than habit. But then two events occur that, 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 that stir this, this bleak and stable set of affairs. Babette receives a letter from Paris out of the blue informing her that she has won the French lottery. She will receive the sum of 10,000 francs. And the daughters announce their plans to celebrate the 100th birthday of their father with the remaining disciples. And the, so the sisters grieve secretly, believing that this means that their beloved and dear companion Babette is going to leave them. But for the first time, Babette makes a request. She insists that she be allowed to prepare the celebrating dinner. And so Babette takes leaves to secure provisions for the meal and returns with carts full of the most exotic foods people in this small village have ever seen. A cage of, of young quails, uh, fruits, vegetables, cases and cases of French wine, and most disturbingly of all, a, uh, a, a live sea turtle uh, that has this snake-like head that haunts one of the dreams of the sisters. This causes quite, in the little church community, causes quite the sensation. They're afraid that this meal might somehow corrupt them and that this is some kind of witch's feast or something like that. And so they all agree, all the, the, the sisters and their remaining followers agree, like good Scandinavians, that they will eat the food to be polite, but they will not enjoy it. One of the church ladies says, and I love this, she says, we're going to eat it, but it's going to be like we don't even have taste buds to taste it. It's kind of like, you know, smoking, but not inhaling, right? Um, how one achieves that is, is remarkable. And, and so then word, word comes that their celebration is going to have a guest of honor. This, this old pious aunt is going to attend with her now aged nephew, Lawrence Lohenheim. He will return back to the situation that he left almost 50 years before, and he's now a general in the Swedish military. 
And as he arrives, he's filled with regret for the love that he never had and for the life that he chose that that brought him prestige and power, but not happiness. And so for him, this is going to be a reckoning and a reminder of all he never had and how he chose glory and honor over God. And so the guests arrive and the dinner begins, and they're first uh, served a soup and a glass of sherry. And so the, 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 the 12 members of this sect you know, begin dutifully eating the soup, and, it, and it's just as if they're eating the same brown gruel that they're used to, and drinking the wine as if it were the same water that they were used to, and, and no one says anything or reacts except the general, who's astounded. Lawrence Lohenheim is taken aback. He says, this tube is, soup is real turtle soup, and this wine, this sherry is amontillado, the finest amontillado he's ever had. The meal continues with each course more marvelous, more delectable than the next, each prepared by Babette, and each with a perfect pairing of wine or champagne. It's a full French meal. And the general, you know, someone who's been to the capitals of Europe, who's eaten the finest fare that there is, he cannot believe what he is being served in this simple Danish hovel. He celebrates the wine. He praises the food well, we see the rest of the group suppressing their delight. He says that one dish is one that he's only seen and been served one time before in Paris at the famous Café Anglais, which was notable because it had a female chef who we then connect with, Babette. And so slowly over the course of the meal, a spirit of fellowship returns to the group. Old sins are confessed and forgiven grudges are released. And the movie ends with the old disciples circling round a well and singing the old hymns under a clear starry sky. But this time in their voices is that old sense of belief and a celebration of the mystery. And near the end of the feast, though, the general rises and he gives a toast And he says, tonight, friends, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and bliss shall kiss. We have all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe. But in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. But the moment comes when our eyes are open. And we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us. But that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it. In gratitude. After the meal, the sisters thank Babette and sheepishly compliment her on the meal. And she informs them of her former life as Paris's top chef. And the sisters sadly wish her farewell because they're sure she's now going to return to Paris with her fortune. But Babette responds, she will not be returning. She has no one to return to, and her community is there, and plus, she has no more money. And the sisters are shocked, wondering what happened to the 10,000 francs. And Babette tells them she spent it, of course, on the meal. And that 10,000 francs was the cost of a dinner for 12 at the Café Anglais in Paris, oh, those many years ago. Isaiah says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. Babette's feast is a parable about that kind of grace. Pure, undeserved grace for the pious 
and for the prodigal. For the people who are so steeped in the language about grace that they've been almost inoculated against it. And for those who believe that they are so lost that they can never be found. Or that have so squandered everything they've been given that they can never be forgiven. It took a French cook to show these churchmen and women grace. And it took a general who had long since strayed from the fold to give voice to the message of grace. But in the end, the good news is that there is a feast where all of them were captured by grace. And if for a moment only saw the world as it was meant to be. So herein lies the answer to the paradox of this passage. How can one buy without money and without price? And the answer we see is that someone else has paid. And, and, and in that way, Babette is a figure for Christ. Because grace means that our debt is paid. A feast has been prepared for us of the finest foods that costs us nothing because it cost him everything. And grace ought to change us because when we realize how much we have received for nothing, how can we not also freely give? And when we know how completely we have been forgiven, how can we not also forgive? And so grace, then, we see as an invitation to stop living in a world where we are constantly keeping score. We are constantly measuring and instead live in one where the slate has been wiped clean because that's what God has done. Isaiah says as much, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? That he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so this Advent season, as we mourn in lonely exile, what we need is a word of grace to free us from the ways we've been confined to declare the good news that is exceedingly good for all people, that Christ is born, the debt is paid, and grace is everywhere. And best of all, it's actually for you and for me, and it's an invitation for all of us to literally taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.